Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome everyone, my name is Vaughn Hyde. I'm the host of IndiePod, an indie games podcast. With the help of my illustrious co-host, the biggest of average Josh Boys, we bring you all the indie games news you need to know, as well as shouting out some amazing indie games over on crowdfunding sites and occasionally derailing to a conversation about big anime chesticles. We are so happy to be part of the HP Video Game Podcast Network alongside so many other awesome gaming podcasts. So if you love indie games, make sure to listen in each and every Friday. This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Hey, yeah you. Did you know that Arcast is on Patreon? Go check out patreon.com slash Arcast for ways to help out the show and get some sweet perks in return. It could be something small such as our $1 tier to show your support. Or join one of our higher tiers to get a shout-out, pick an episode topic, or even be a part of the show as a special guest. Even just sharing our show to your friends goes a long way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash artcast. Thanks for helping us, and keep it retro. What's up, Argonauts, and welcome to another Retro Gaming Podcast. This is Arcast Mini number 39, and I am here with a very special guest, old-time game designer here, Dan Kitchen. So how's it going there, Dan? Good. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And um, in light of, like, just, like, I guess, like, the state of the world lately, uh, it is, like, a little bit of a miracle, I guess, that we're both standing here today. So. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I did want to talk to you about, uh, you know, about like your career and history with Activision and all that stuff. Uh, but first, I wanted to talk to you actually about something that you posted on LinkedIn as well as like your uh, your own personal blog as well, uh, which is in regards to Flower Power. So this is a floppy disk apparently that you pulled up, uh, which is like supposed to be your first Activision game. So I believe this is like back in uh, 1982. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, I, I actually started this. Uh... Um, pre-Activision days um, uh, on an Apple II, which is what we were currently writing software on. And I had envisioned uh, a game with flower pots and, and dropping them, and I had called it Flower Power. It, it actually came to mind while I was walking through the town we were based in, and, and you know, the, the old uh, um, kind of Isaac Newton type of inspiration, I actually saw flower pots falling <laughs> from a ledge with some workers and and it was very cool and i looked at uh, i looked at my brother at the time and we were together and i said you know that would be really cool you know what if we had something what if we had these things dropping out of out of windows and uh, things could be climbing up and, and i don't remember if at the time crazy climber was in the arcade it may have been because mm. i know that had a had that had a guy climbing up and and some of the things he was avoiding were flower pots popping out of windows. But I, I, had, I had seen that, and it had inspired me. And part of the way through development, some of the guys in the lab looked at me and said, well, that's, that's almost like a reverse kaboom. And I, I thought of it and said, yeah, you know, I think Larry will be proud of me. Gary at the time was also working. Uh, he was writing Donkey Kong for the Atari 2600 for Coleco. Mm-hmm. And uh, we worked together in his basement. And I was beginning to work out what my first Atari 2600 game was. And the first thing I did was I played with the color palettes and the background colors. And I, 
I, I like the shading. The, the Atari gave us 128 different colors. Um, and we could do some very nice shading with the colors. So I envisioned a, a brick wall and, uh, and, and a curb. And that was pretty much the first thing I, I popped up on the screen. And I, I liked the way it looked. Um, and about that time, we were just speaking to Activision about joining, uh, joining them, getting on board. Right after we initially met them, I think at the 1982 January CES. And they were very impressed that Gary had done Space Jockey. And uh, funny thing is, Gary had actually called them from uh, our basement lab in New Jersey and asked to speak to someone at Activision about product development. And the person at the phone didn't really understand what that meant. So he said, you know, who can I talk to about somebody who helps make your games? And after a few minutes, it was routed over to Tom Lopez, who was their VP of product development. And Gary said, you know, I'm calling about product development. I, I programmed the Atari 2600. And Tom paused for a moment and said, no, you don't. <laughs> and, and Gary said, well, well, yes, I do. I actually have back engineered the system. And I, 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 I'm the one who, who created Space Jockey that's going to be coming out in a few months. You had the receipts basically with you, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, the, so the Tom put us on hold and, and immediately called up and said, we're going to be at the, at the uh, January Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Uh, can we set up a meeting? And uh, I know this was sometime probably in December of 81. And we went, uh, we went out there and met them. And to date, that was Gary was the first non-Activision, non-Atari programmer who had back-engineered the system and learned how to program for it. Um, and what a wonderful meeting with them. We had another meeting, the same show with Atari. We flew back to New Jersey, and a week later, we received uh, first-class tickets to go out for Atari, and they wined and dined us out there. And I have to say it was, it was very disappointing because they were not very much in the, in the designer's corner. Um, I literally had the VP of product development look at us in a meeting and say, you guys aren't really that special. I can hire towel designers to do what you do. Oh, wow. Okay. Because <laughs> he, was from, he, was, he was from the, uh, uh, the consumer packaged goods business. And, uh, you know, we, we enjoyed our weekend out there with Atari. We, we flew back to New Jersey, and a week later, we received first-class tickets for Activision. So I have like a, like a number of questions, really, to kind of branch out from that. But uh, I guess like first thing I'll ask, actually, is in regards to, you know, to like Atari themselves, actually. Like, how would you describe, I guess, like Atari's, I don't know, I guess like attitude towards like developers or like, you know, game designers, I guess, that they were like working with at the time? They were not uh, considered special. And the, the atmosphere in the lab was you could tell it was not a pleasant atmosphere. Um, primarily, the guys, Bob, Al, Dave, and Larry had left primarily because they weren't given recognition for their work. And we could tell that that atmosphere was still very much alive. We had spoken to some of the designers while we walked through the lab and looked at their games, and a lot of them complained that, that it was very difficult to get the real good products. Mm. I don't recall the chap who did... Pit, uh, who did uh, Pac-Man, um, but he was given uh, great royalty and everybody else in the lab resented him because he was given that chance. So there was no camaraderie. There was no respect from the management to the designers. 
And it was a very, uh, very uncomfortable situation in the lab to be working with other designers. Honestly, the guys who were there didn't really know of Gary and I. I mean, we hadn't really made a mark in, in the business. Um, they, they had heard of Space Jockey. They were impressed that Gary had back engineered the system. And uh, they didn't talk very much about the guys at Activision uh, because obviously they had left a year or so before and, and it was kind of verboten to discuss them in the lab. But a, a lot of them told us that they were secretly um, rooting for Activision and would like to have some, at some point uh, jump ship to join Activision. Previous to, to these two trips, when Gary had started to back engineer the system, we were pretty avid players of the original Activision games, much so that, that those were really the ones that we saw that were incredibly impressive from the Atari ones, as everyone else of that generation saw. And it was four of us, myself and Gary and another chap, John Van Ryzen, who eventually worked with us and did Hero. And then another guy, Kevin, who came to Activision but didn't create any, any titles and had left soon after that. And at one point in the basement when we were working together, we said, you know, we would talk to each other and say we'd love to work for Activision. You know, those are the kind of guys we aspire to be. And Gary had taken out one of the catalogs that appeared in every Activision box of the four guys in the back, Larry, Al, Bob, Dave. And he took a piece of paper out and he drew our faces and we, we scotch taped them over them and said, <laughs> one day we're going to be those four guys. Wow. And lo and behold, through Gary's uh, brilliance of back engineering the Atari and, and creating the space jockey game um, and then getting the deal with Coleco to do Donkey Kong, that really put us on the map. So Activision was very much interested in, in our skills. I mean, like, it sounds like, you know, as far as like from like the very beginning, anyway, you really had to like, you know, scratch and claw your way into like prominence in some way, or at least to kind of get like your name out there in like a way in order to, um, I, I guess that's just kind of like make like a name for yourself really in the gaming industry, like considering it was very much like the wild west back then. It certainly was. And I think one of my recent posts was of six games we had done for Hayden Software, the publishing company. We had been contacted by them because we were known around the local computer stores as the Kitchen Brothers. Through that, one of the B VP of product developments at Hayden Software contacted us and wanted us to port a, an Apple game to a, an Atari 400. And it was a game called Reversal, which was an Othello product. And it was a fairly straightforward 6502 port uh, working around the input, you know, the I.O. issues of the Atari 400. And we did that fairly well and fairly, fairly quickly. And they said, well, do you have any other products you'd like, you know, to work with us on? And we said, sure, we've got, you know, two or three in the lab we were working on for the Apple. And we showed them and they were impressed. And they had signed a six product deal for us uh, to create six games, of which I did two and Gary and John Van Ryzen did two. Um, and then the, the chap Kevin did too. And these were for the Apple. And I actually had a post a few days ago or last week that showed the, the six games. I actually still have them in the original uh, packages with the original price tags. And they were sold through Software Cities and Creative Computing here in New Jersey and a few other stores. Through that, we became known in the area of the computer stores. And then we used to go to a lot of the swap meets that were on where people would go and, you know, the early times people would 
meet up in the computer clubs. And people began to know us from our work and from our games. What also helped is previous to all of this, Gary and I worked for a, uh, a firm in New Jersey that did electronic toy and game design. Mm. Uh, um, it was there that he had created, designed, and patented an electronic billiard game called Bankshot, which was eventually sold by Parker Brothers. He and I helped design Wildfire, which was an electronic uh, pinball game done by, uh, done by Parker Brothers. Uh, we did a line of electronic handheld games for uh, what was then a new company called the NPI. They were all the type of uh, grids of 20 to 25 LEDs, and you put various games through them. And we had helped Parker Brothers with some of the work on Merlin uh, and some of those types of products. So in the, the toy industry, we had a name. In the computer business, we started to create that persona of us by visiting a lot of the computer clubs and showing them what we had been working on. So obviously, since you've been like working with uh, with like Gary back then, anyway, um, was there any like sort of like sibling rivalry really, as far as like your game design prowess or like you know what it was that you were like working on, or or or, or did you like really kind of like work in tandem as as like a team like throughout your game design history? Yeah, we we actually worked in tandem. There wasn't uh, there wasn't a whole lot of competitiveness. We uh, uh, we had our older brother also at the time who uh, was a, a, a design electronic genius. And he was more on the electronics end, doing a lot of the heavy lifting for those electronic toys. Um, but when Gary and I split off and did the software, we, we worked well in tandem. And a lot of the knowledge we had, we used uh, to, to help facilitate the software work. For instance, we chose the Apple II as the, the, the computer we were going to write the software on primarily because it was 6502 based. The Atari 2600 was 6502 based. And the Apple had the ability to lift off the top and you could create your own cards and put them into the peripheral slots. Well, we needed a way to run the code on the Atari. So Gary designed a, a board that would fit into the Apple that was a 4K uh, board, would have 4K of RAM in it. And then I had written some software so that if you're working on 4K of RAM in the Apple um, onboard RAM, you could then uh, easily dump it onto the card and basically run it off the card and then take that card output through a, uh, a ribbon cable and solder it into an old Atari cartridge board, slip it into the Atari 2600, and actually get the Atari to run what was out of the 4K RAM on the board. And so that's how we de designed our first Atari games. That's how Gary wrote Space Jockey. That's how Gary wrote Donkey Kong. That's how I started uh, Crackpots. And I would, he would design this, and then I would go and tweak it and hand wire a probably half a dozen or more of these boards because John needed one and Kevin needed one. I, we, we needed one at home because we were writing software in multiple places. Um, and so I would hand wire these, you know, with hundreds of wires and, and test them and get them to work. Uh, and so a lot of the experience we had working on the electronic toys and doing the engineering really helped us to create our own tools to be able to move into the video game uh, space. So was this game design strategy or like philosophy, I guess, um, you know, kind of like similar to like, what like emulation is like now? Like, is, like, is it fair to say that? It is. Um, we actually were at one point also looking at 
creating an ICE system, which was an in-circuit emulator. Um, our current board at that time didn't allow for any real software tools. We had no debugging. We had no uh, breakpoints. We had no single step. Um, we had a logic analyzer, which uh, would roll in on a big cart that had a big LCD display and a big clip. And what we would do is open up the Atari 2600 and put the, put the, uh, the clip onto the pins around the 2600. And then we'd be able to see through a logic analyzer what the processor was actually doing step-by-step step in the program. But it was back then that we really learned how to program because without any real debugging, if you had issues with a, with an, with a program, you would basically get a listing and sit down with, uh, with a Coke and go through it line by line and play computer and figure <laughs> out where your problem was. And, and now this was miles ahead of what we were doing two years prior when we were doing the electronic toy games, we did those in 4K microprocessor. And a lot of those boards were large peripheral boards with a ribbon cable that would go out to, say, the wildfire handset that you would hold. And a lot of those boards would take eight EEPROMs, and those EEPROMs were probably 1K each. We would have to sit at a terminal connected to a custom TI computer, that was made specifically, say, for that processor. We would type our program out, and then we would have to burn eight EEPROMs to see if our edit worked. And we would burn eight EEPROMs, plug them into the board, turn on the system, and see if it worked. And if it didn't work, you'd make a printout, you'd go back through, and you'd figure out line by line what the problem is. And each time you had to do an edit, you had to burn eight EEPROMs to stick them in the development board to see if the game lit up. Like trial and error, basically, in that case. yeah. <laughs> like trial. So two years ahead now, oh, we could now just press a command key, and I would download all that 4K from the Apple RAM into the onboard, flip open, flip on the Atari, and hey, that was a lot simpler than burning AD proms. Right. So we were slowly progressing. Uh, we were going to make an ICE system when we actually joined Activision and uh, fortunately found out that Bob Whitehead had designed a wonderful blue box system with a monitor built in. Uh, that you would connect the VT-100 to. And, and he had a number of uh, breakpoints and a number of single-step commands and a number of ways that we could more easily debug our code. And uh, that, was, that was a wonderful thing when we, when we joined Activision. Eventually, we got a PDP-11, um, which was actually slower than our apples. We could develop on an apple and assemble pretty quickly. But we had four guys writing on a PDP-11, and everyone decided to assemble their their 4K cartridge, we could go out to lunch and come back and maybe by then it was done. <laughs> I mean, that's like really kind of speaks to, I guess like anyone who kind of grew up like back in that time as far as like what the processing speed was like for computers back then in general, um, you know, that really kind of speaks to them, I think, in that case, you know. But I'll tell you, it, we, were, we were on the cutting edge. You know, we were designing things. I know that Activision was the first party software, a first third party software company so when they left Atari, I mean, they were inventing things every week. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no third-party company. They couldn't look at a, you know, a, an acclaim or an, uh, another company and say, well, how do we do this? Um, and, uh, you know, we were really pioneering different types of gameplay techniques and different type of manufacturing techniques. And uh, it, was, it was the Wild West, but it was an awful lot of fun.
Activision is a very different company now than what it was back then. Uh, how, how would you like describe Activision back when you worked there back in the 80s anyway? Um, I guess like compared to like what you notice of them nowadays. Well, the company today is about two or three companies uh, removed. Mm-hmm. Um, Activision had gone bankrupt, I think, in the late 80s. So the only similarity is, is the name. I mean, Activision today does incredible products. From the people I know there, it's not run like, like our Activision. Our Activision was honestly, you know, you say this and people use these terms and they don't really understand it, but it was really fun, run like a family business. Mm. Uh, Jim Levy was the head of the family. They treated us and treated all the employees like family. I mean, if, if some of the women who worked in, in, in the business got pregnant, they got time leave, they got patern- uh, paternity leave. Um, if people were sick, they really took care of you. It, it was so much so that my ex's mother, uh, she was a, an artist, and she actually created for us the Activision family tree, which is a beautiful drawing that shows uh, the center of the tree being Jim Levy and the four designers from Activision. And then all the leaves and branches root out to everybody. And at one point, we had 150 or more employees um, in, the, in the U.S. and abroad. We had, we had guys in, in Europe. We had uh, sales offices in, in London because um, we were selling our, our games everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, every time we did a cartridge, we had to do a PAL version. We even did a CCAM version, um, which was sold over in the Middle East. Um, it was very much a family-friendly atmosphere. Um, when I joined, when Gary and I joined in May of 1982, we got a memo two weeks later that said, hey, um, in June, we're going to all be going on the Activision family vacation to Hawaii. <laughs> wow. And you can bring a spouse or spouse equivalent for four days on Maui of fun in the sun. Uh, and we all got a set of Activision luggage. And they literally really knew how to motivate people and keep people happy in their workplace. And we were treated like rock stars. Um, the only place in the building that was not accessible to anyone was the lab. Um, we had to have a card key to get into it. No one else was allowed in. No one could really speak to us about what we were doing. And we would go out to California and visit with Bob and Al uh, and Larry and Dave often, and then we go out to like a Marie Callender's uh, or you know one of the places in Silicon Valley, and you couldn't talk about what you were doing because you know the walls had ears. Sure. Um, and we actually we actually used to have kids call our office and call their office and say that they were us. So we actually had kids <laughs> call our office and say, "Hi, I'm David Crane. Can I talk to Gary?" So much so that we actually had had code words that we would use. So if somebody called Dave Crane and said it's Dan, he would actually ask a code code word. And if it was me, I would respond with the code word. And then we'd sit there and say, okay, let's talk about the, you know, Dave, let me talk about the kernel I'm working on. Wow. (laughs) That is insane. (laughs) It was fun stuff. And like them, we would get bags of fan mail. It was good times. And, And it was the atmosphere in the office was, was happy. It was always a place where creativity was king, where suits did not tell you what to do. You really created product, showed it to marketing, and they ran with your concept. I mean, it definitely sounds like there was definitely more of an indie kind of like atmosphere to it. Um, I mean, like even though as much as like people like to think of like Activision nowadays uh, being this huge company, and they are, but like certainly back then, I mean, it's a different atmosphere entirely. 
Do you feel like as far as like how things were with Activision back then, uh, did that speak more to just like the way that the company was uh, to more of like the way that the gaming industry was or just to like the more, I guess, like more of the way that like business in the 80s was done? Well, you know, Jim Levy had come from the record business. So that was pretty much the way that they handled the artists and the talent. And so Jim brought that philosophy over to video games. Um, I know it was not the case at other places. Um, Gary had worked on Donkey Kong in the last month. They sent him up to Boston to sit there and get the product done for the Christmas deadline. It was not a pleasant atmosphere working with the, uh, I guess, the Greenbergs it was. They were huddled around his desk all the time and, and pretty much slave drivers. Um, and we had heard the same at other companies, specifically Atari, and other companies that began began to build up. I mean, you had great indie companies in the late 70s and 80s, like Sierra Online. Uh, EA initially was, was really done with a creative atmosphere, and, and the suits weren't the one you know, calling the shots. And you have to be careful because it is a business. So you really have to work hand in hand with the suits and or marketing because there's no point in creating original products that aren't going to sell. Nobody's going to stay in business. Right. So you as a designer have to have somewhat of a business mind to know that, um, you know, this is not going to be commercially viable. Um, one of the guys we had who worked with us was a brilliant rocket scientist guy from bell labs who we brought on board um, and he just didn't know it was a commercially viable product. So he worked on a couple of games and he had left after, after that with games that, that, weren't, that weren't able to make it. The same thing with the, the guy, Kevin, who was with us doing the Hayden software work. He, he really didn't come up with titles that were commercially viable. And, and as much as I think it wasn't so much the 80s, I think it was more Activision. I guess in the early software companies of the 80s, maybe they did work that way. I don't know about Microsoft. I know EA worked that way. Um, I know Sierra Online worked that way. I know Ken Williams actually offered Gary and I a job Mm. before Activision to work out out near uh, Yosemite with him and uh, Roberta, his wife. So I'm not so sure it was the 80s. I think it was that philosophy in some of the software indie companies. And then in some of the other companies like Atari, where you had senior management and a lot of cash put in from corporations, they weren't having any of that. They really wanted to guarantee the products would sell and call the shots. The last Arcast Mini actually we had was actually with the Coles, who used to work over at Sierra Online as well. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so, I mean, like, as much as, you know, people who are, like, within the gaming industry now uh, like to joke about the fact that, like, as much as the industry itself, uh, with, like, how much money it brings in and all that, uh, that's still very much of a small industry in terms of, like, the people who know each other and work with each other and all that stuff. Uh, do you feel like that concept i guess of what the game industry is is like kind of like tenfold or like hundredfold or like even more so than that uh from like back then you know as far as like the people who you knew and worked with or like you know just like i don't know just like people who were like basically in the same like uh venn diagram of like uh game companies as you were sure i i think it's i think it is at at the core um it is the same the same business mm-hmm. and uh obviously people are in some cases playing with a lot more risk these days um, but yeah, I, I think there's still for these designers today, the same thing we experienced 
is the excitement to to see something come up on the screen that you had envisioned. But today, you know, today you hear a lot about the crunch. Well, I can tell you, we had the crunch too. And as much as you try to plan and you, you try to, to schedule things as best you can, it's still creativity. And, and creativity cannot be done on a fixed, absolute schedule. Right. What I tell up-and-coming programmers today is they say, you know, what's the one piece of advice you can give me? And I usually tell them to look out for the details and be detail-oriented. And that is what will affect the schedule most of all. You, you, you allocate that you're going to do this little man running across the screen routine. It's going to take you two weeks. Well, maybe in two weeks you're going to have it working. But is it going to feel right? And is it going to feel the best it can? I can give a consumer two games, and they're similar, and they'll play both games. But inevitably, they'll probably say, I like this one better over here. And when you ask them why, they say, I don't know. And usually it's that game that has been polished better and every little part of the gameplay has been massaged and polished so that it can feel as good as it can feel. And that still takes a lot of time. And so even back then when we were writing games in the late 70s, we had the crunch. We allocated enough time. But you know something? It took longer to get something to feel fun. It took longer to put something in. And so we inevitably always pulled those all-nighters that get the product done as much as as you know as it is a creative field as far as like game design is concerned um do you feel like there is a way to i guess like quantify the amount of time that it takes like after you like you know design the thing like as you said like you know you like uh, design like as far as like having like a you know having a, your character run across the screen and like you know jump over like an alligator for example i'm using kind of like pitfall almost as a, as an example here but um to like to like jump over an alligator swing across a vine or whatever and you're like okay this is exactly how i want this scene to kind of play out you map it out and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, now I need, now I need to make it feel right. And then like, you know, now I need to kind of like take into account, maybe this will happen or that will happen or like maybe this bug will happen or whatever it may be. Is there actually a way to quantify that? Or is that like just kind of completely up to just how things go in the creative process? It's a lot of experience. Um, it's a lot of experience, but pre-planning helps considerably. Um, one of the things we did in my what I did in my career is I always would do very detailed game design docs, and I would always create games with the input of others, because one man alone I don't think could make necessarily a great game. Although in cases I've proven wrong, like Dave, mm-hmm. Pitfall was wonderful um, at Activision. We were able to make some really cool games, but when you get down to it, Dave was having Al and Bob and Steve sit and play that game, and tweak it and discuss it. Um, so a, a collaborative effort is always important, even in the design stage. And the more you can, the more you can design and create your asset lists and get an idea of um, what the game is and put it in writing for the team or put it in writing for the producer to follow, um, it is going to help streamline it better. If you've done games like this before, you're just going to be able to have experience to say, I know the issues that occurred then, and I can try to avoid those issues now. With experience and with pre-planning, 
you can help mitigate some of the delays and some of the crunch. Now, like when you mentioned crunch, though, I mean, obviously, crunch is still very much of a thing in the gaming industry today. I mean, like the most recent example I can really think of is Red Dead Redemption 2 with Rockstar. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. Um, so I guess like from your experience, like dealing with crunch even from way back and like in the early 80s and all that how would you mitigate that like is there is there like a way that the gaming industry can like maybe like you know quote unquote fix that or like something that can make it easier i guess for the people who actually made the games that we all enjoy well you know the kind of games we were doing i mean let's call back in the 90s you know everybody was enamored with mario and so you know a lot of the games were platformers Mm -hmm. and those stories back then were not were not red dead redemption you know they were they were text bubbles coming up with characters and you know the joke kind of was that sometimes in the lab is well you know we're creating the next platformer game for a client or for somebody and we have 20 levels well um you know it's getting clear that near, near the end and we've got you know seven levels of the front seven levels of the back uh you know if we cut out some of those levels in the middle uh, nobody's going to know they were supposed to be there in the first point right in, in the first place so um and that's what we would do back then. I also think during the creative process, the producer and the designer tries to throw in as much as they can. They want it to be as cool as they can. They want it to be wow to the consumer. And when we were designing games, we weren't designing them just for the consumer. We were designing them for other designers. We wanted guys to walk up to the Atari and sit there and say, well, that's, that's really cool. How the hell did you do that? And, and so I think people will try to put in as much as they can and they will crunch to do that. And some of the reality is, it's hard to finish a game. At the end, there are thousands of little, of, you know, there's a list of thousands of little things you got to fix. Especially nowadays, too. Spe- oh, especially nowadays. Oh, good God, with all the thousands of assets and the hundreds of people working on it. And it just, at the end, it becomes very difficult to manage that and get it cleaned up to a point where it's bug-free for manufacturing. Yeah, just ask Bethesda in that case. <laughs> just, yes, that's right. And fortunately, now you have games that you can, you can rev. Uh, you know, back in our days, we were, you know, you're making a ROM, particularly for the 8-bit Nintendo. When we were doing a game like Boy and His Blob, Dave lived in California. He moved to New Jersey for four months to write the game. Um, we got a house for him rented down the street. And we worked with them around the clock for four months. Dave did most of the work on Boy and His Blob. Gary created the Blobolonia world. <laughs> I did support coding. And Nintendo had a hard fixed date on getting, that, getting those products out for Christmas. Mm. So they would say, okay, you must deliver ROMs to us in Seattle, Washington on August 15th uh, by 5 p.m. Pacific time. And if you did not get the ROMs to us by that date, you would have to wait the next quarter to submit the game. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, we were trying to make Christmas. And there was manufacturing done overseas. And that would be weeks and weeks. And then they would put on a boat and ship it to us. And then we would have to get a freight forwarder to get it to our warehouses. This is when we were absolute entertainment. We were publishing games. Mm -hmm. And we literally, at the end of a lot of those projects, we flew a guy and put him up in a hotel across the street in Redmond, Redmond, Washington, across from Nintendo's offices. And we would write code and send it to him overnight. Now, this is at that point, you had AOL and you had not much else. So we would traditionally use AOL because they had a good checksum package when you could send code 
if it had an error, it wouldn't stop and begin the transmission again. It would pause until the error was correct and then continue. And so we would be sending code over to somebody in Seattle to overnight take like eight hours to, I guess back then it was not 2400 baud, but it wasn't much else, 4800 baud. And they would be burning EPROMs to test the game. And we had them over there for about two weeks. Oh, wow. And we would be making edits and at night moving the code over to them. And they would play the game. We had testers here playing the game. And we would fix bugs and, and send the code so that literally on August 15th in the morning, they would have code that we feel is good. They would package them up. They would label each ROM. They would actually have a VCR because you had to submit games with a full um, playthrough of the game on a VCR tape. And they would create the package and walk over to Nintendo and make sure that it was in their hands by 5 p.m. The joke at that period of time was if you had a bug in your game, it became a feature because there was no way to remanufacture it. <laughs> and now that's like a meme now these days. <laughs> that, that, that is a meme. As a matter of fact, there was a game that Dave Crane had done. He had finished uh, Decathlon, oh, yeah. which was an Atari 2600 game. And they, the game was done and it was sent to manufacturing. And I remember the next week, um, the game had just be- begun to be manufactured. They had, I think it was... KNBC in San Francisco come into the office to do a piece about decathlon and they had brought some kids with them and one of the kids was playing decathlon and right on live television did something and a bug happened <laughs> I think it was the, the pole vaulter put down the pole and you had to jiggle the joystick or press the button to actually release it and fall on your back onto you know onto the uh, the area for you uh, the big cushion area and the kid had done something and kept pressing the button and the pole vaulter released the pole and kept flying slowly off the very top of the screen and disappeared. And, and Dave Crane was sitting there watching him play. And, and David told us that he very quickly excused himself from the meeting uh, with the reporters, went in the back and called the, uh, the, I think it was the Melpitas manufacturing area and said, stop making the ROMs now. <laughs> and, and that Stop the presses, basically. Yeah. <laughs> he made a fix to the game. He tested it. He sent a new one in. And I think to this day, there's probably two or three or four shipments. So there's probably a few hundred games out there that are decathlon that have a bug in it. Wow. So that's the kind of control we could barely do to fix the game. And thank God today, you, you put out a game, you can put out a patch. And, right. You know, certainly games on the iPhone, you, oh, you got an update. Yeah. And that makes it wonderful for us as software developers. Not that we're not supposed to test the game as good as we can, but boy, it's a lot better than, than having a game forever be out on the shelf that, that had a problem with it. I mean, that actually reminds me a lot of with, uh, with like Maniac Mansion on the NES. Yep. With like the, um, the like hamster, like being able to like microwave the hamster in that case. <laughs> that, yep. And like Nintendo discovered that and like realized it's like, hey, we don't want this content on our console or anything because like Nintendo was very controlling like that. And yep. so basically LucasArts like just had to like just change it like like you know for like future like versions of the cartridges in that case and it was just like it was just like madness but like that that's just basically how, how you know how you had to do it before like the internet and being able to you know have like day one patches and things like that. Absolutely. And and I'm surprised something like that went through. There was a time that that Nintendo laxed on having to deliver the game with a full uh, videotape of it. Uh, cuz that's something they would have caught had they reviewed the entire tape of the gameplay. Um, but I, I guess at one point they didn't catch it or, or they at that point were not 
We're not reviewing videotapes of the gameplay, but that was certainly a requirement. that you said that they were very controlling mm -hmm. they were but i can tell you that I, I firmly believe that nintendo saved the video game industry oh yeah for sure what you know what what made the crash happen was guys like gary had back engineered the system and learned to do games but do them very badly uh, and I, I remember the night that gary and i were in new jersey and we we went into a place called the video shack to look at our games as we often did and we were really surprised that oh my god there's a game from another company in there <laughs> it's not atari and it's not activision right and it was by games by apollo and it was a game called skeet shoot and we we asked and they took the game out of the case and they gave it to us we turned the box around and we said holy s-h-i-t <laughs> we're screwed because yeah. we saw how bad the game looked and and I'm certainly not speaking ill of the programmer. My programmer was Ed Salvo, very nice chap, and we, we, we have a good working relationship. But it, clearly Ed would tell you it was his first attempt, very badly done. And when that started spreading around that people could do that, well, people began to do very cheap, very quick, dirty games. And the market was flooded because there was no restriction on manufacturing or Nobody, no, nobody overseeing them. And if the, you know, at the end, you'd you'd have what you see at the National Video Game Museum. You'd walk into KB, and there were just bins of bins of games, Atari games for two dollars and three dollars and one dollar. And you know, you, I just came out with crackpots, or Gary just came out with pressure cooker, and they'd be behind the counter for thirty-eight dollars. And and it wasn't the game players who would buy the games; it was their parents. Mm. And their parents would walk into KB and say, I can buy five games for $10. Why am I going to buy this Activision game for 38 bucks? And that really, that really flooded the market and killed the game business. And then Nintendo comes out with the 8-bit and says, we control everything. Right. And, and at the time, a lot of the companies we worked for were angry. Some were talking about doing, uh, doing lawsuits uh, because they were, they were a monopoly. And no, with their ability to, to allocate chips and to decide what games got manufactured and whether they were good enough, um, that really brought the, the, the retailer's confidence and really brought the business back up online. And uh, while it got a lot of negative press in some of the, in some of the financial uh, newspapers of the day, the Wall Street Journal and other, other because of their, you know, their flagrant ability to be a monopoly mm -hmm. and shut people out. We we think it was a wonderful thing. Interesting, yeah, because yeah, because I I know that like people are very split on this because um, you know, it's just kind of funny enough actually. Like as of this moment, as of this like recording anyway, uh, I am actually working on a book right now, kind of detailing that that you know that like early history of like Nintendo with like the NES and all that stuff. Um, so a lot of this information is very much like fresh in my head. So like the 10 NES lockout chip, um, yep. oh, yes. you know, that was like the big deal pretty much. And like, as far as like, you know, locking out, um, you know, with like publishers being able to publish, I think it was like over five or six games per year, basically. Yep, and that's, so that's correct. And so that's why like Konami had to make like ultra games and like, you know, there's like Tengen as well from like Atari and like all this stuff. Um, 
you know, it, it was just like insane. So, I mean, like, as far as you're concerned, though, um, despite the, uh, you know, like the monopolization, I guess, of like, the industry back then, anyway, um, you feel like overall Nintendo is still kind of like in the right as far as like, you know, how they like handle like the games industry, um, I guess, like, you know, like post crash, if you will. Yeah, I think so. I think that's what it was needed to come back online. And particularly, that's what they needed to win back the confidence of the retailers. Mm. Um, the retailers needed to know that they weren't going to be flooded with average product and that there was going to be some sense of control. And I know, look, I mean, I just met six months ago when I was at the Activision 40th reunion. I sat down with Greg Fishback. And Greg, of course, was head of Acclaim. We did a lot of titles for him. And I remember... When we finished Bart versus the Space Mutants, mm. um, you know, Greg had sales for, for hundreds of thousands of units, but Nintendo would only allocate certain, you know, quarter million chips to him. And of course, as a businessman, when you have, you know, orders in hand, that's that's an annoying thing. That's that's going to disrupt your your cash flow and you know disrupt your, the growth of your business. Sure. But I think overall, that type of control helped prevent a second crash from happening. Um, and it really helped mature, give the business time to mature. Um, and so I, I think it was a good thing. And we always had a very good relationship with, with Nintendo. Uh, as a matter of fact, we, we worked with them also on a number of, of legal issues that they had with other companies. Hmm. Uh, my brother Gary and I worked on, on games for them from, from expert witness standpoints, particularly for the, do you remember the, the old Magnavox lawsuit? Yes, I where, do. Where yeah. Magnavox sued everybody. Because of the patent that uh, they had, were able to get, where where two on-screen objects, if they collided, that that the collision had caused one of them to change direction. That's right. And, and movement. Yeah. And of course, many games uh, fell under that patent, and Nintendo hired us to go through their games and and create create analysis so that we could help them with that lawsuit. Mm. Um, and that's actually something Gary still does to this day. He. Uh, he primarily works in the game business as an expert witness, um, helping companies like Activision and others um, to to manage uh, and mitigate issues from from lawsuits that may arise between uh, companies and games. Interesting, yeah. So I mean, wow, they, like that really kind of spins me into like a whole other like slew of questions really that could happen. That, um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I guess like the one question I will kind of like go in like that particular direction anyway, as far as like the legal stance with like game design. Um, do you feel like it's gotten like harder now, just like considering like all the different assets there are, like with with like gaming these days, and just like with all like I know one example I could certainly give actually is with like Capcom when they came out with Street Fighter Five. And mm-hmm. uh, they had um, they had like their like lineup of you know of, of like characters that they wanted in in that particular game, but one of them was Karen Kanzuki, which is uh, you know like her character is actually owned by the actual designer of the character, not so that's, much by like right. themselves. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I mean, like, do you feel like that that is a harder thing? I guess to, like to litigate or like something to like really like kind of nail down as far as like who is in the right, who is in the wrong. Um, nowadays, as opposed to like back then with like, you know, with like Nintendo and like with the way that they had like their own, like how like strict, um, you know, the strict rules and regulations for, for like publishers and designers. I think it's probably harder now. Um, I know that there's some cases that Gary and I have worked on. So let's give you like one example is, um, automobile manufacturers are very litigious. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're doing a game like a GTA three, you know, back then on the. 
or, or some type of Grand Theft Auto or some type of racing game, they have a team of people to really check these games. I mean, you can't, you can't make the back uh, of a 1977 Dodge look, you can't create a car that's going to look like the back of a 77 Dodge with the way the, head, the, the back lights are, with the way the brake lights are, with the way the, the molding is, with the way the, uh, the steel is. You, they've gotten very litigious. Rightly so. It's their, it's their, it's their IP. It's their trademark. It's their, their product. Mm-hmm. But, um, for instance, we did a, we did a, a, a lawsuit recently with, uh, with a couple of games I won't mention um, where Jeep uh, wanted to make sure that the Humvees in there were um, were not infringing upon uh, the Jeep's brands or the Jeep's trademarks. We didn't have that level of legal issues when, when of course, we were doing 8-bit games or 16-bit games. But when you're doing things that are photorealistic uh, and you're doing games that are incredible open-world sandboxes, I think that designers may take some liberty at using things that they think are in the public domain or they think they can get away with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you said, you're using thousands and thousands of assets. Um, so, so inevitably, you have to be very careful and vet these things to make sure you're not infringing upon anyone else. I mean, even if you think about like with like uh, Fortnite dances, for example. Absolutely. Like- <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, what was it? It was, uh, what was the game where the, uh, uh, the naked cowboy? Oh, um, right. Sued? Um, I, yeah. It was like some yeah. other game that has like custom dances and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. That had custom dances. Well, I mean, you know, he, that is his shtick. And he apparently has legal rights from using it, mm-hmm. um, even though I'm sure it's not necessarily trademarked. He may have trademarked that. Well, even with like um, with like Destiny, for example, because like Destiny yep. had like the Carlton dance, and like the That's actor correct. who played as Carlton in the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, he yep. he's like sued. Uh, I believe it was Activision actually. Yeah, because yeah, Activision owned Destiny at the time. Yep. Um, like over that. So I mean, like yeah, like absolutely. It's just like all these like moving parts. Basically, they have to like keep in mind and. You know, it's just to kind of like make sure it's like legally on top of things. So right, and 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 they even they even get down into the into the uh, um, into the mechanics of the game and into the uh, mechanics of the game design. I was brought onto a case years ago, uh, which involved a guitar game and its ability to create a plurality of sounds and how it did that hmm. versus another another game that created a plurality of sounds and notes. There's a lot of trolls that will look at these patents of these games and, and just go and say, you know, go fishing and basically try to create a problem. And then there are, there are real companies that will say, okay, that looks awfully a lot like the way we're doing it. And they dig into the, into the schematics and they say, okay, you're using that sound chip. We're using this sound chip. It's basically a very similar circuit, very similar design. Mm-hmm. And I think as games have gotten more complex in their hardware, and in their peripherals, as in addition to uh, the depth of the game and the number of assets, I think litigation has become more and more prevalent. That's fair, yeah. And sometimes I see guys doing some homebrew games that are knockoffs of games that you would have seen in the arcade in the 80s. And I really shy away from that because clearly you're making a game, even if you're creating a, a game and you're doing it on a system now, if you're selling it, and you're taking anything for it, you're infringing upon somebody's intellectual property. And as, a, as an intellectual property creator, I think that has to be carefully kept and, and it has to be honored and it has to not be infringed upon in any way because these software designers, 
they themselves are intellectual property creators, and they wouldn't want people to take one of their games or one of their characters and do to them what they're doing to some of the other companies. So we just have to have respect and boundaries for these things. And when in doubt, you know, consult an IP lawyer. It's always safer to do that than than create a game and go out and sell it, and all of a sudden you get a cease and desist order. Speaking of intellectual property, uh, you certainly worked on a fair amount of intellectual property yourself uh, with the Ghostbusters, The Simpsons, Ren and Stimpy. There's Casper, Home Improvement, I see as well here, too. Home Improvement, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then later on at Majesco, I worked on Eon Flux and The Darkness. That's right. And Teen Titans and uh, a number of other other titles all through. All through my career, I've been fortunate enough to work on original titles but a lot of titles that are either film based or a comic book based or television based so with with that said then uh what's like the particular challenge you find with working within the confines i guess of intellectual property as opposed to making your own ip people and publishers will pick intellectual property to hope to mitigate the amount of marketing they need to do Mm -hmm. something with a high q rating but it comes with its own challenges some can be very strict um, I've done work with Disney, and of course, you have to be very strict with what you can and cannot do with their characters. The mouse doesn't play. So. <laughs> that, yes, well, you know, it was probably the a funny story on that one. We had secured the rights to Goofy uh, before Home Improvement. We were doing a Goofy game, mm. Goofy's hysterical history tour. For those of you who don't know, correct. <laughs> and you know, we had created it, and I worked closely with their product team, and we had sent out a couple of versions very early on. And we had a meeting, and they flew out to the office, and they sat and they looked at the, the level we had created. They said, "You know, this is good, but um, Goofy is not perfect." <laughs> we said, "Okay, great. Can you tell us, you know, what what we can do? Are we not getting? We obviously weren't getting the character right." Mm-hmm. They said, "Well, what you need to do is you need to get a Disney animator to create the frames, not unlike we had done with Aladdin." Yeah, I said, "That's great. Let's have a name." Uh, we can't give you the name of a Disney animator. Disney animators cannot work on outside Disney licensed properties. So you want me to have a Disney animator, but you can't let me use a Disney animator. They said, that's correct. <laughs> so that was a challenge. And, and they, they got on their plane and they flew back toward the West Coast. And fortunate, uh, I had a chap who worked in my office who was a, an artist and an animator. And he had studied at a school in New Jersey called the Joe Kubert School of Animation. And we were sitting around discussing it in our, in our post-meeting. Uh, and, and he came over to me and said, you know, one of my professors was an ex-Disney animator. And, and I beelined to the phone with him. We telephoned this man. He was an old man. He was actually in his 80s. His name was Milt Neal. And he was one of the early animators that actually worked with Walt and Roy. This guy was an incredible wealth of knowledge. He had worked on Dumbo. He had done the original work and a lot of the keyframes for the Three Caballeros, oh, wow. which I think was a Donald Duck uh, film. Yeah, and he was just based about twenty-five minutes from the office, and he had an in- a studio at home. He had retired from teaching, and we drove over to see Milt, and he and I became fast friends. 
Uh, I think at that point he was in his middle to high 80s. Um, I had found out that he was also the creator of Howdy Doody. Oh, wow. Um, okay. He worked on the Howdy Doody show and actually drew and designed Howdy Doody. And it's nothing like sitting with, with a person with incredible talent. I had done that in my career many times when I was able to work with, with actors who did voice work for us or did, did collaboration on games. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd sit, you'd sit with an actor and all of a sudden they go into character. And I, I got to tell you, it's just breathtaking to sit with somebody of the caliber of the actors that I've had the privilege of working with. And with that history, too. With Howdy Doody. I mean, come on. Well, with a history. But, but, I'm, I, but I'm thinking of I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with, with Charlie Theron. I had the opportunity to, to meet with Tom Hanks on a game that we were going to work with him on. I did some extensive work with, with Robert Unglund. And to sit there and, and with a person like Robert and discuss the game and then have him jump into character, it's just <laughs> mind-blowing. Well, Freddy Milt Kruger, had done yeah. the same thing. He would sit there and, you know, just take out a pen and a paper and a couple, you know, you'd watch him. And all of a sudden he'd turn around and it's like, oh, my God, that's goofy. Or, oh, my God. And he'd sit there and explain to you how to do it. So we, we met with him for an afternoon. He, he agreed to work with us on doing all the keyframe animations. And his student, who, who worked with us at our, at our company, would sit and do all the tweening with him and a couple of guys. And so he did this and we... We would get a system down, not unlike what, they, what David did with Aladdin, where we scanned in all the frames, we'd bring them in, we'd clean them up, and we'd colorize them. And we'd bring them into deluxe paint, which is what it was then, and some of these other tools. And I think at that point we had a, a tablet that we would use. And so we worked on this earnestly for about three weeks, and we told Disney we had another ROM to send them. And they said, no, we're coming out to New York City for a meeting with, with some of the Disney offices. We're going to come by your office and take a look at what you got. And they flew out, which was probably three or four weeks later than they had been there previously. And they sat down, and, and I flipped on the Sega Genesis and gave them the controller. And I got to tell you, the look on their faces, they fell. I mean, they were just aghast. They were, they were <laughs> in shock. And they looked at me and said, how did you do this? And I said, well, you told us we couldn't use a Disney animator. I found a Disney animator. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and they off laughed. the grid yeah <laughs> i think that i think one of the guys we were working with was noah dudley very nice chap mm-hmm. and noah kind of looked at us and said how the hell did you do that and we explained that uh, that milt had taught in new jersey and and he remembered oh yeah milt neil and he started rattling off the stuff milt had done and uh, we said you know milt was right up the road and and they were very happy and that was that was a case where we were able to serendipitously find somebody who was perfect to work around the difficulties of the licensor. But of course, in, in other cases, you know, yes, we, we had restrictions of things you could and could not do. Um, and home improvement was an interesting one because we had done did this work with Disney. We were actually at the time in negotiations to get the rights to the Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, It hadn't been released yet. We had seen some of the early dailies uh, Disney was showing it to us as a licensing partner. And I got to tell you, we were enamored with it like everybody else. Yeah. We were, it was beautiful. They said, you know, you can get that. Oh, and by the way, we have this, you know, this is doing really well in our slot on ABC. Why do you come out to a taping? You can meet the cast. And, and is there something you can do that you can bring it to video games? Because <laughs> at that point, they really wanted to take a lot of their properties that were doing well and bring them over. Well, we met Tim Allen and we met the crew and, you know, it was a reach. How are you going to make a video game about a guy who 
sells that tool time. <laughs> yeah, Tim the Tool Man Taylor. <laughs> That's it. But we started to, you know, as we do with other games, you've got to bring in the fantasy element because you can't always replicate reality in a fun way in a game. Right. So we kind of said, okay, let's say there's a museum or there's this and Tim is now running around and these things are coming to life and you've got the dinosaurs and you've got the other things. And Disney liked the idea and we, we created that game. It didn't sell incredibly well, but the mechanics were pretty fun. Um, and we got the license for a song. So I think we, we financially did well. I mean, as far as like how like the game itself actually represented the property, I mean, this, this is Home Improvement Power Tool Pursuit. Basically, each level that you had... Uh, was basically like a different set, or at least that's how, you know that's how it was like framed, basically. Because obviously, like Tim the Toolman Taylor, he like you know he's like on a set, he does like a show and all that stuff. So basically, you had them on like different right. sets. Right, he'd go over to the next sound stage, and it was a different in a different time, uh, and he would have different sound stages to go to, um, and to help the chaos that had broken out onto the back lot. That's crazy, <laughs> and, and it was a crazy idea. Uh, but you know, again, in that case, we were able to have a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, 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 clearance to do some things with Tim. And it really based upon the game. When we did the Simpsons games, we worked with Matt and his crew. Mm -hmm. And and there were things Bart could and couldn't do. uh, And there were things that we really, Matt wanted to leverage from the the show. And so we put in the bit of him skating, uh, which was from the opening sequence. And we put in the bit where, where you could get coins and points by calling Mo and the on the uh, on the payphone right and 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 going through you know the alcoholic is he there <laughs> uh and and there were bits that that they wanted us to do but with all licensors you know there are do's and don'ts um and certainly with actors there were things we couldn't couldn't do uh as an aside i had worked uh i'm also i also design tabletop games and i've got a couple a couple coming out this year um, that will be kickstarted. And early on, I guess back in 2001, I guess no, around 2004 and five, I worked with a company in Canada, uh, and we did a CSI board game. And I was uh, fortunate enough to work with Anthony Zyker, the creator of CSI, uh, for about six months. And Anthony is a big board game player. Mm. And we had pawns of all the actors in the show. And I got to tell you, it was really hard to get approvals from those folks because we were creating uh, small sculpted characters of each actor. And of course they were done in China and um, we had to go through multiple iterations to, to sit with the actors and make sure that they signed off on what their pawn character looked like. And so that was their agent and that was them. And that was the studio that was Anthony, fortunately. And so in that case, it was really restrictive and we went through multiple versions of these pawns to be able to create like-like versions that were acceptable to every party involved. Wow. So yeah, licensing can have its 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 frustrations, uh, uh, but certainly it'll sometimes it'll help you make a game and sometimes it'll kill a game. Now, uh, 
um, since I do personally actually have a lot of history with Bar versus the Space Mutants, um, yes, I do have to ask you one very quick question. Um, was there any sort of like I guess like regrets as far as like the game design or like how difficult that the, you know that the game kind of ramped up to be, especially when you get to like say like the museum for example, or like say like the platforming during like the shopping mall or anything like that. Yes, yeah, there was certainly we um, we made the game too hard. We're not passing the buck, but the team that was playing it at Acclaim wanted it to be harder, and we feel we made it way too hard. I mean, the beginning levels are much easier. I coded the museum level, and they actually wanted us to shrink some of the platform right and left variables and some of the things like the dinosaur heads. Oh wow! And things like that. <laughs> okay, yeah. And you know, they didn't want people to play the game through too quickly. Right, because um, the rental business back then, I imagine, right. That is correct. You're exactly right. Uh, it was it was a rental business, and that's where a lot of money was made by going down to Blockbuster and, and and getting the game and playing it. So yes, we do have regrets. There are many games that, looking back now, I personally and I know Gary um, has regrets. Then we would have done things differently. We would have done some other work, and we would have made the game easier. And in a lot of cases, I, I hate to say that we were also on time crunches. Certainly on that game. When you feel you're going to do a game like that, you always hope you have a lot of time. When it's a game of that caliber, inevitably, to acquire the license takes an awful lot of time and an awful lot of lawyers. And we were told we were going to do that game, and we didn't get that, the rights to start that game for probably two months. And of course, Christmas didn't move. Mm. And so we have to do the best game the fastest way possible. And in hindsight, there are a lot of things that we could have done especially in those later levels to make it more fun and make it more playable and less aggravating and difficult well i'd say like within the time constraints that you had uh my enjoyment of the game was certainly there anyway uh especially with like that first level anyway where you had to like uh, change all the purple items over to like orange or whatever sure so, but um... i do apologize uh <laughs> I, I speak i speak for all of us on our team that we do apologize that some of those early games were just too bloody hard. Right. Um, <laughs> but there's like a reason and, for it at least. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and, and it's interesting. I was saying this to somebody the other day. Uh, I have a friend here who runs an arcade. And he was sitting there saying, you know, how come some of those early Activision games are really hard? <laughs> and, and they were. I mean, I, I'm a really good player. And I rarely get to the third wave of all the items in, in Mega Mania. I mean, the first one's good. And the second one you pretty much get to after you go through the popcorn coming down. Yeah. But that second one gets <laughs> bloody hard. It does. And, yeah. and then the third wave is like, oh, my God, this is really hard. It's brutal. I, yeah. I, I find some of the games like Sequest, I can play really well up to 150,000. Um, some of the other games like Bob's um, uh, Choplifter, I mean, Chop, Chopper Command, man, it just gets really hard after the third one. But a lot of the games, they wanted us to make that. They wanted them to be, get really hard and make the slope be really steep. And we probably did that later on in some of the 8-bit games. But we've learned, certainly learned well before now, but certainly not something that, that we want to repeat. And I wish we could go back and modify some of those games. So I want to end this actually on, uh, on like a new game actually that you're working on right now. I believe you're still working on it uh, as well. It's called Dan Kitchen's Gold Rush. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Um, so what can you tell us about, you know, about Dan Kitchen's Gold Rush? And uh, also, when can people expect this out, too? The, uh, the, the, the short version, because I started that game after Crackpots. Um, Gary had finished Keystone Capers. I had finished Crackpots. Gary had gone on to working on 
on pressure cooker, and I was working on a my second game. And I liked Keystone Capers very much. Had always wanted to do a train game, a game on a train, because I knew I could do the display beautifully with with mountains in the background, and of course the Activision sunset. Mm-hmm. I knew I could do the train cars really well. I could do a trick to have eight uh, non-flickering wheels at the bottom of the screen, and I could make a an old-fashioned railroad with a steam train. And so we were talking one day, and Gary said, "Well, why don't you use Keystone Capers? Put them on there, and you know." My idea was he left the uh, Southwick's department store, he went, went west, and he's now working on a, retra- a train in his retirement. So I created this game, and I put Keystone Capers up there, and I had train cars and some scrolling, and that was about the time the crash happened. Mm, right. And Activision was really concerned about us continuing our 2600 games and said, look, we want to move you over to the Atari 400, to the Commodore 64, uh, and get off of the Atari system because it doesn't have much of a life. Well, I made a ROM of it, brought it home, and uh, put it somewhere, and lost it. And for the next 20 or so years, I would meet the guys, John and Sean and Joe from the um, National Video Game Museum, who, who used to have the classic show uh, that would go around and used to bring their, their setup to all the E3s and all the CESs. And I always told them, I had this game I started there that was a Keystone Capers 2 game. And they were interested. Year after year, they kept saying, oh, okay, okay. But about the 20, 22nd year, John would say to me, you know, Dan, I, I got to tell you, we think you're full of crap. <laughs> we haven't seen this thing. You keep talking about it. And I said, someday I'm going to find it. It's like a unicorn out there, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, two years ago, I was going through my storage with my, my girlfriend, and she's pulling out stuff saying, what's this, what's this, what's this? And then she pulled out this red cartridge and said, what's this? And I said, holy crap, that's Keystone Capers 2. And I immediately walked out of storage and got on my cell phone and called John Hardy, who runs the museum. And he happened to be in, in New York uh, on Long Island visiting his mother. I said, John, I found the ever-elusive Keystone Capers 2 cartridge. Hmm. And he said, hold on, I will be there tonight. <laughs> and he drove over from Long Island to my, my place in New Jersey. And we plugged that sucker into an original Stella and turned it on, and oh my God, it lit up. Wow. And it was exactly as I had described it. Well, uh, to go back a couple of months, right before this, Gary had found some tools online to program the Atari 2600 in your browser. And he had sent them to me and said, oh my God, look, we found, I found this. And I said, this is really cool. Let me play with it. And I said to myself, two months prior to finding the cartridge, I think I'm going to recreate that Keystone Capers 2 game I could never find. Wow. And I started writing the kernels for the mountains and for the, for the parallax scrolling and whatnot. And I was probably almost through in two months with the display kernels, and I found this cartridge. After plugging in and looking at it, I said to John, I got a surprise for you. And I powered up my PC, and I turned it on and said, look, I started rewriting the display two months ago using this tool that Gary found. And we compared the two, and oh my God, it was practically identical. As a matter of fact, my display I had rewritten from scratch was actually better looking. Wow, yeah. I had this cartridge. I don't own the rights to Keystone Capers. It was an Activision cartridge. Uh, Certainly, they weren't interested in it. And John was foaming at the mouth to get it as a donation to the Video Game Museum. So I ended up donating it to the Video Game Museum and took the code that I had started on this this, uh, browser tool and said, you know, I'm going to finish the game finally after what it was 35 years. And I said, I'm going to release the game, but I can't call it Keystone Capers 2. It was originally called Keystone Cannonball. 
And my significant other, Carolyn, my girlfriend said, you know, maybe do something with gold because it's the old West and whatnot. And, and in talking, we came up with gold rush, which is a, a very nifty idea. Since the game is you're going through the train on the top of it and in the train cars to try to find gold to return to the gold car before time runs out. And you get a new train with, you know, a new maze, in essence, of gold that's scattered around these cars. So I have since taken about a year and a half uh, to write the game. And it is going to be called Dan Kitchen's Gold Rush. Uh, it will be uh, actually kickstarted in, in about two months. I'm kickstarting it to raise money for the manufacturing because I'm creating an actual cartridge system like the old Atari games. It's like an indie game, basically, in this case. Yeah, it, it's an indie game. Uh, it will be under the label of Tiki Vision because my my development company that I do full time is called Tiki Interactive, uh, primarily because I'm in I love all things Polynesian and Hawaiian. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And Tiki Vision is a very nice name, you know, synonymous with Activision. Uh, the artwork looks identical to a game that would have been created in 1981 from Activision. I started releasing at trade shows starting two years ago, collectible trading cards for the game. Oh, wow. Okay. The game is probably now about 80% done. Um, I actually released a video about six months ago that shows a lot of it. I'll be releasing another video in about a month's time. Um, the package is done. The patch is done. Um, the trading cards are pretty much done, um, and they will be available at different tier levels for the backers who want to back it. Um, and I'm really just raising money, for, as I said, for the manufacturing, so it'll be fairly inexpensive. And you can go to my website at dankitchengames.com and subscribe to my blog, and you'll receive updates on the game and see some of the nifty artwork that's, that's already there. That will be finished and released hopefully by summer. Uh, and hopefully the coronavirus will not hold that up because <laughs> right. some of the board manufacturing I was having done overseas. And I've already got a second game in the works that will be released at the end of this year. So, again, you can read about that on my site. So, like, is this coming out for only Atari 2600 cartridges or is there going to be a digital version of this as well? It, there will be a digital version. The initial release 2600 cartridges to the homebrew and people that actually still play the original Stella or play it on the... A Retron 77. Um, but then I will be porting the game to mobile uh, and to, to other systems. I think uh, actually already been discussing with Tommy to bring the game to the Amico system um, mm. and, uh, and to some of the, to some of the other systems that uh, hopefully if they ever get their act together, you know, <laughs> will be out there. But initially I want people to feel like they did when they purchased a, a game in 81, they got the game, they got the box, they got the manual and they were able to win or play the game, take a picture of the screen and get a patch sent to them uh, and be able to, to be part of a, uh, part of a community of, of gamers. Uh, and that's why I want to do a line of 2,600 games to really capture the essence of what Activision was in the beginning. Old school to like the core, basically, in that case. yeah, <laughs> Old school to the core, that's correct. Very cool, very cool. Um, so speaking of old school to the core then, is there any chance, any chance at all, uh, that you can get Jack Black to do a old school commercial for the game, just like how he did for Pitfall. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I did have the opportunity to to meet Jack um, on one of the games that we were working on uh, that didn't actually come through, and I do know his agent well. Mm. I mean, I met him in a meeting once. He was a very cool dude. Yeah, I mean that that may be something he's into. 
I'm sure he would be, honestly. Yeah, with like Jablinski games and all that stuff that he's doing right now on YouTube. So yeah, absolutely. Yes, exactly. It's it's unfortunately the cost of me producing the commercial. Right. Um, but it would be a lot of fun to do. I got to tell you. I mean, knowing um, Jack Black, I mean, like I've never met him in person or anything, but like knowing like I guess like how his personality is and like who he is and like based on like everything I've seen online anyway. I would imagine he would be all on board for doing that, like through his own pocket. Honestly, like he he would be all for that. I think. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's it's it would be exciting. It it would be it would be phenomenally exciting to do that. Yeah, um, and certainly something with your recommendation, I will I will pursue and see if I can make happen. All right, um, stay tuned. That's for something that. I would promise, but stay tuned for that. Also, uh, in the train in various levels, you will see cameos of some of the Activision characters. From some of the older games, Ooh, okay. um, so I'm kind of mixing in. I'm kind of bringing in some of the uh, homage to Pitfall Harry, and to uh, uh, obviously to Keystone Kelly, to Potsy from Crackpots, to Frostbite Bailey, uh, and you're going to see some of those characters uh, brought into the game to to kind of kind of tie it all into the feeling of Activision. If you'd like to send us any feedback, opinions, retro games, or topics for us to cover, or anything at all, really, you can email us at ardcast at retrozap.com. And be sure to check out retrozap.com for all sorts of other amazing podcasts. It's your home away from home if you're crazy about Star Wars, Animaniacs, or pop culture in general. There's also us with ArtCast, so be sure to find us on iTunes to subscribe, give us five stars, and tell your neighbors. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. So there's absolutely no reason to not follow another retro gaming podcast. And where else can people go to find you online there, Dan? www.dankitchen.com or dankitchengames.com. And you will be able to see what I'm doing with the new Atari game. Um, Check out some of my past games and credits that I've received. And uh, just keep an eye out for... uh, for, for new announcements on some new titles that I will be bringing out. And uh, from there, you'll also learn about some of my tabletop games that will be coming. Very cool. And uh, you can find ArtCast on Twitter at ArtPodcast. Same thing for Facebook, facebook.com slash ArtPodcast. And you can find me on Twitter at the Guilty Man. And until next time, keep it retro. This is John J.P. Podlasic of Game Dev Advice. I'm a 30-year veteran of the game development industry and have a podcast where I interview artists, animators, programmers, designers, CEOs, and all different types of people that work in the game development industry. Whether you're an aspiring or an experienced game developer, you'll find useful, thought-provoking, and sometimes funny advice on the podcast. So check it out. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.